Lula Taylor hit the Sunday Times bestseller lists with a winter-themed escapist story and found a winning formula for holiday reads that are perfect for curling up with on a sofa with a cup of hot chocolate or a glass of mulled wine. The latest, A Winter Memory, is an absorbing family drama set on the edge of a Scottish lock in an ancient manor house that's a perfect setting for revelations of love, obsession and betrayal. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Lulu talks about the international fascination with snowy mysteries, what keeps Christmas stories high on the bestseller lists and her opportunity to interview Sarah, Duchess of York, about her recently published Mills and Boone's Romance. This is the 199th episode of The Joys of Binge Reading, so next week we celebrate 200 shows with a very special guest. More of that at the end of the show. Before we get to Lulu, just a reminder, you can support the podcast for the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month and get exclusive bonus content, access to behind-the-scenes stories, tips on who's coming up next so that you can read their books ahead of time, and insights into our featured authors like Lulu in the Getting to Know You Quickfire Questions feature. But now, here's Lulu. Hello there, Lulu, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be with you. Look, you've created a real niche for yourself with these last eight books, most of, many of which have been London Sunday Times bestsellers. They're winter-themed stories, so every one of the covers are these gorgeous snowy settings with ancient houses and wrought iron gates, which immediately sets up a certain kind of story. This has become a bit of a sweet spot for part of your work anyway, hasn't it? Tell us about it. Well, it's quite funny, really, because that happened by accident, really. My first book in, in this kind of genre was called The Winter Folly. And it was called that despite the fact that quite a lot of the book is set in the middle of summer. But there, there was this building, the folly, and, and the moment that it, it really features in the story is in winter. So I thought, well, the winter folly sounds sounds really resonant. And, um, and they said, well, that's lucky because we've decided to publish you in early December. And at the time, I, I thought, well, I guess that's a, an all right slot. But generally, people said to me, that's really not a great place to be published. All the big um, autumn and winter books come out much earlier. No one's buying books at that time of the year. This is actually a bit disastrous for you. So I've, I was a little bit apprehensive, but that turned out actually to be incredibly lucky because they had these winter titles, because the art department at Macmillan came up with that really lovely look for them. And because they were published in early December, and there was no one else published at that time of year at the time, they just really stood out. And one of the other things were, were, were that they weren't Christmassy. 
they didn't have Christmas in the title and they didn't have anything Christmassy on the on the cover. And that meant that they carried on being appealing all the way through winter. So January, February, and sometimes into March as well. And um, that that was just lucky for me, really. And of course, immediately the second book, they said, well, give it another snowy, wintry title. That really worked. And it, it went off from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And although, as you say, they, they don't have anything Christmassy, but... I've discovered that there is this thing of people buying Christmas books, isn't there? There is a little sub-niche where some people love to have Christmas stories. So even without the Christmas, obviously, on the on the title or the cover, you probably are also attracting those readers as well, do you think? Definitely. And I think that something else that the publishers didn't think about was that often people are not just buying gifts for other people, they're also buying something for themselves because they've got a holiday coming up, a Christmas holiday, and they've got a bit of time off and they want to relax. And that's a time when, you know, people who really love to read stories at Christmas time are looking to get something really kind of wintry. And Christmas has always traditionally been a time for storytelling, often quite sort of dark, deep mysteries and ghost stories as well as heartwarming, you know, Christmassy festive stories. So it's just a really great time of year for that kind of thing. And the funny thing is, I mean, here I am in the Southern Hemisphere and we have obviously summer Christmas, but there still is an international resonance about a snowy winter, isn't there? I mean, I feel it and I've lived my whole life in New Zealand. So it's, it's just a funny little mystique that it's got, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, it's very deep in our cultural consciousness through stories and Christmas carols and Christmas songs and movies. It's all in there. And actually, I've got a little bit of a confession to make to you. And that is that I was born in New Zealand. And oh, yeah, and I grew up there until I was about seven. And I was brought up on all the sort of old storybooks, the English storybooks, British storybooks and things. And the first thing that really mattered to me when we came to it live in England was that it was Christmas at winter in the winter time instead of in the summertime. And it suddenly it felt like that all made sense, you know, that I saw my first robin and I saw my first snow and it was all it was like sort of stepping into one of my own storybooks. So Yeah, that's that's remarkable. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> Look, the one that you've just published, I think it's the eighth one in this kind of uh, sub little subgroup, isn't it? It's called A Winter Memory. Yes. And it begins with a couple, Helen and Hamish, relocating from southern England up to family in Scotland because they've had a bit of a disaster. Hamish has lost his job. And at the beginning, we're a bit vague about exactly the detail of how that came about. And it starts to unfold as the story develops. But the Scottish setting for it is just lovely. I've never visited Scotland, but I just loved the old castles and the very vivid scenery that you brought to life there. And it really is an escapist read. I saw one of your reviewers who said it's the sort of book, yours are the sort of books that you like to curl up in a corner with. Well, I think with a hot chocolate or a glass of mulled wine is just the way people would like to take it, curl up in a corner <laughs> with some hot chocolate or mulled wine. Yes, it's, well, I love Scotland. We've been there on holiday quite a lot. And I've always felt a little bit as though I've got some Scottish in me. What was my very, the fact that my my ancestors who went out to New Zealand were from Scotland. So I've felt a sort of 
link with all of that. And um, I mean, going up there, the country, the, the scenery is so beautiful. And I'm really delighted if you think I've captured some of that because it, you really can't stop looking at those skies and those lochs and the mountains and so on. It's really stunning. We, we went up to this house, which is the house I've based Ballantyre on, although Ballantyre, the house and the story, is much bigger and, and grander. But I got to know the area around that house quite well and I've used it in, in the book in, from the, the fairy ring that they walk around at times to the loch, the sea loch and the, and the great fairy ploughing past. Yeah, it's wonderful. But there are also aspects of the psychological thriller and a little bit of gothic secrets as well. So it is an escapist read with a darker depth to it. And one of the aspects of this book is the complex psychology that underlies one of the mother-son relationships. Do you do quite a bit of research into that psychological side as well? Yes, I think every story needs that sort of slightly twisted heart to it because most families have got their their hidden pain and their their secrets and nearly all of my books do have families who are finding something out about themselves in this one the theme is a kind of inherited pain and how that can affect someone who marries into a family like that who brings a whole different set of approaches and values and how they can crash into the strangeness of others and the way that they choose to live their lives. Mm. And, and so that's really the sort of the message and all the, all the central concern at the heart of this one. Yeah, yeah. Now, before these winter books, you did do four blockbusters. You've written a lot of books and they were more in the tradition of the Shirley Conrad, Judith Grant's sort of stories, updated, of course, from their period, with titles like Outrageous Fortune, Midnight Girls, those sorts of titles. Can you tell us about those earlier books and, and about how you got into writing in the first place? Yes, well, I really loved writing those books. They were so much fun and uh, just I raced through them. I wrote them very quickly and, and really enjoyed them because I'd grown up on some of those 80s blockbusters that you, of the kind you mentioned and really adored them. And I just really enjoyed the sort of fairy tale fantasy aspect of them. Usually they were girls with lots of money and lots of beauty and hair and things like that and lots of clothes <laughs> having a lot of fun <laughs> and some difficult times as well the market for those books didn't really take off in the way that the publishers hoped they would and then something came along which really knocked them out of the park and that was 50 shades of gray so that was published on the same day as outrageous fortune and it basically took the genre and and Blockbusters were known for being a bit racy and having some sort of sex scenes in them and, and so on. And Fifty Shades of Grey sort of took that and ran with it. And basically interest in blockbusters really sort of disappeared. It's probably coming back a bit more now, maybe, but for a while it was kind of, nah, that's not working. And I thought, I've got to change direction. I, I've really enjoyed doing these books but I also knew that they weren't the kind of books that were really closest to my heart and that really I relished the idea that now I could start having uh, a slightly more realistic style, intergenerational, so old people and, and young children as well, and, 
and, and more of a sort of gothic twist to those to the stories with and a historical element too because I'd always loved historical books. That's great. Getting into writing, was there some sort of moment when you decided I really want to write fiction as kind of epiphany or is it something that you've just always felt there you you were going to get to? Well I think most writers have always have started as voracious readers and and, and that's certainly how I was and from going from loving books from a very early age I went very naturally into loving writing my own stories and I wrote my first novel it's probably about 50,000 words when I was about 13 and it was a real sort of mashup of my favorite authors it was historical and Victorian and lots of ripped bodices and shipwrecks and you know <laughs> very dramatic <laughs> but it was it was a complete story weirdly enough and oh, it was set in Russia as well and England and and that really I, I thought gosh you know I do love writing it, it's wonderful but as I grew older I didn't really have the confidence to think I could write fiction. So I went from studying English literature at university into publishing. And I became a fiction editor, in fact. And I really learned about the book world from that side of it and worked in publishing for 10 years and commissioned quite a lot of authors um, who are now quite successful and quite proud of, of their success. I was Santa Montefiore's first editor, Fantastic. Yeah. And Jill Paul, actually. And also oh. Louise Candlish. I don't know if you know her work. And so, you know, I, I really loved working on books as much as reading them. I, but again, I didn't think I could necessarily write one, which is ridiculous because I was telling other people how to do that all the time. And then I became a freelance um, editor. And from that, I began, I began doing more writing work, including some ghostwriting. And then I thought, you know, I should have a go. I should have a go at writing that novel. But it was one of the most scary things I've done was to try and do it myself. <laughs> that's when I that's when I started. So I guess the long answer was that answer. The short answer was I always had, I think, a writer in me. It took me quite a long time to get the courage to let that writer out. Yeah. And that first book that you wrote when you were 13, you mentioned that you were influenced by some of your favourite authors at that stage. Who were some of those favourite authors at that stage? Well, I absolutely loved the historical novels of Jean Plady. I don't know if you know her at yeah. all. Yes, um, yeah. And all her alter egos of Victoria Holt and so forth. And I loved Cynthia Harold Eagles and all those sort of big dynasty books and... I loved, I'd still really enjoyed all my childhood books like Frances Hodgson Burnett. I loved the Victorians. And so my book was set in Victorian times. And also I loved, I was just beginning to get into Jane Austen and Nancy Mitford and, and other, other authors like that. I hadn't yet read Daphne du Maurier, I don't think, at, at that age. But I was definitely on my way there. And mm. uh, yeah, so that was really, you know, what inspired me then. Do you think that you would still, do you still have a hankering to write sort of very much more historical novels yourself? I would love to write a, a fully historical novel. The thing that slightly overwhelms me is the amount of research that needs to go into an historical novel. Mm, and mm, people do know their stuff and you need to get it right. And you need to uh, learn everything you can and then sort of forget it because the other thing you can't do when you're writing an historical novel is to show 
all your knowledge too obviously or it reads it doesn't read like fiction it reads like a, like non-fiction so you've got to fold it into your narrative and into your story so that it's almost imperceptible and yet completely fills the whole book with the sense that you know your period you know your place the characters talk in a way that doesn't sound like an historical pastiche but also doesn't sound like it's someone just down the road talking to you today so it's a mm. very delicate balancing act but I would like to try mm. my hand at that one one time. Yes, I would. Mm-hmm. So give us a little bit of an idea about your typical working day these days. Do you have a, a set time when you write, like from 9 till 12? Or how do you organise it? And have you changed that process over the course of your writing life? Well, I think the thing that's changed most over the course of my writing life is getting a sense of belief that I can do it. Because even now, I still feel very nervous about whether I'll be able to make a story live. And some of my stories, some I think are more successful than others. But I couldn't really tell you why, because I always set out to to do the absolute best I can. But sometimes you're just, the, the magic is just a little bit more there than it is in other books. And you can't really tell why. My process is I'm not as disciplined as some who sit down every day, you know, write their thousand words. I do a lot of cogitating and I do a lot of research through reading and visiting places and sort of cooking it in my mind and getting lots of visual stimuli so that I've got a real sense in my mind of the world the book is going to inhabit. Then as my deadline approaches because I'm a little bit of a deadline fiend I need that deadline because it really helps to sort of add the adrenaline or the spice and then as I Mm. get closer to that I begin to write really very fast and long long hours as well I find that a bit of an agonizing part but I need it because of the intensity I go into that world with such intensity that I'm I am living it which can be a bit a bit difficult. I had some builders here once and I was just writing, coming towards the end of my book, The Midwinter Promise. And it was very emotional and I was really deeply in it. And they said, could you just come out and look at this thing we're doing, please? <laughs> I went out with them and they started talking to me and I said, I'm so sorry. I actually, I, I actually can hardly see you or hear you because I'm, I'm somewhere else right now. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go back inside and carry on working. And they, okay, that sounds normal. Oh, fine. Yeah, you come out later when you're ready. (laughs) So I, uh, you know, I do sort of feel it. But at that point, I find it very useful to be so deep within it and and living it. The strange thing is that that can kind of bleed over even when the book is a bit finished. And so one year I got quite upset because I thought I'd forgotten to send a Christmas card to somebody. And then I remembered it was my main character on my book. <laughs> of course, I couldn't send her a Christmas card. But for a minute, I felt real, you know, real upset. Oh, no, I left, I left Ruth off the list. Oh, my God, could I be so stupid? You know, <laughs> Are you a fan of in-depth conversations on a wide variety of subjects? Then you need to head out on the open highway. I'm Eric Erickson. I bring my crazy career and interests in a variety of subjects to the show, and since I seem to know, well, a little bit about everything, it's just enough to get me into trouble. 
The open highway is like going on a road trip and meeting all different sorts of people. It's that old idea of sitting at that diner counter, having coffee, and talking with folks with completely different backgrounds. One episode might be a political operative, the next a professional wrestler, and the next a philosopher, just having good old-fashioned conversation. If it's interesting to me, I'm sure it'll be interesting to you too. The Open Highway, new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Get them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Look, you mentioned you like to go to places to research. How have you been affected by the COVID business in the last 12 months? That was really very hard and it helps that I knew the place that I was writing about already very well and that meant I was able to go there in my mind. But I didn't produce a new book in during COVID. A lot of people found it the perfect time to write. I didn't because I was used to being, I was used to having hours of, of a day to work on my own. And now everyone was at home with me. My husband, uh, a teacher, so he was doing online school all the time. Very busy, very stressed. My two children, te- young teenagers, were here also doing that online school. And I just became sort of their support network of cooking, mm. cleaning, shopping, mm. Mm. sure people were exercising, making sure people weren't lonely, making sure, you know, that sort of thing. And I found I couldn't do it. I could not write. And it, I felt I felt very spoiled somehow that I couldn't do this job when so many people were having such a difficult time. Yes. I felt like that was really self-indulgent to say, oh, I can't write a book. It's too difficult. But I really, there was nothing in my imagination. I couldn't find it. Mm. And um, I began mm. to panic, actually. And it was a horrible, horrible feeling. And when I went to my publishers and said, I can't do it, they were very sweet and said, miss a year. This is, if, if anyone can, you know, miss a year, this is the year. No one's going into bookshops. No one's going, you know, that isn't happening. People are still yeah. reading, but, yeah. you know, it's such a strange year. We'll reissue a book. So they reissued The Snow Rose with a new cover. And I just got a bit more breathing space. And as things began to return a bit more to normal and my children went back to school and my husband went back to work, I found I could get back into my imagination again. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. It's funny, even without that interruption of family life, it does something to your head, which is hard to really understand because, I mean, for a lot of writers, the actual physical details of their life isn't going to change very much. They're still sitting in a room in front of a computer, but the fact that everything's so different in the outer world does seem to have an impact. Yes, I think so. And some found writing to be the only way to get away from it all. But I I just, I didn't have that experience. And it just shows you how Mm. different we all are in the way that we approach writing and approach accessing our imagination and our imaginary lives. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Look, I see on your Twitter feed, I just caught my eye that you've got quite an important book date coming up in a couple of weeks, you're chatting with the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, about her romance, The Heart for a Compass, at a local literary festival. Tell me how that came about, and is it something you do every year? Well, I I do support the Oval Literary Festival by interviewing authors, which I actually really enjoy. It's really nice to be interviewed myself today, I must must admit, but for uh, a week a year, or a couple of days a year, really, I go along there and have the real pleasure of meeting lots of different types of author 
and chatting to them about about how they write and why they write. And this year I'm going to be talking to Lionel Shriver, which is going to be interesting, Deborah yeah. Morgach and some others, and yeah, the Duchess of York about her Mills and Boone novel, which I haven't read yet, which I obviously must get on. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she's last on my list, actually. She's my last interviewee, so I'm getting to her book last. Luckily, I'm a fast reader. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds fun, yeah. Yeah, I think she's quite a character. But I think that there oh, are Oh, yes, no... I don't think... You won't have any trouble getting her talking, I'm sure. No, but the one thing that we're not having is questions from the audience. So, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. A little bit tricky, that one. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. a bit sensitive right now, I think. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Look, turning, turning from the specific books to your wider career, one question that I do like to la- ask everyone and see what they say, is, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would attribute your success to? Is there one thing that other beginning authors might be able to take out of your experience? Well, I think there are two main things, the kind of writing. And that is that I think that I have moved towards finding my authentic voice and writing the book, the books I want to write. And I think that is really key. If you try and be a bit too cynical and think, do you know what, thrillers are the the big thing. I'm going to write a thriller because that's what everyone wants. But really what you want to write is, you know, that historical crime novel, then I think you're always going to to fail on on one on some level. I mean, you might succeed on just about every other level, but there's going to be something, some little piece of heart that isn't quite there. So once you've found your voice, which takes a while to develop, and found the kind of books that you want to write, then I think that's really key. The other thing is more about the kind of writing life as a published author, and that is that I was really lucky with my agent. I found an agent. She is exactly my age and she was really starting out as an independent agent. She'd been a sort of baby agent before then and she was looking for people to represent and I approached her because I knew that she was really sort of second to none in her protection of her authors. She always fought for her authors and I thought that's the kind of person I want to represent me and she was also had a special talent that a lot of agents don't have, and that is she has a real editorial eye. So she is really good at working on story ideas with you and critiquing works in progress and giving really good feedback. And she knows the market, you know, that's her job. So she's able to look forward and, and look at the kind of realities of the marketplace in a way that I couldn't do on my own. So that was really a piece of luck and I think has been really important for me. It's interesting because coming from the publishing industry, you would have been in a better place than many beginner writers to see the trends, wouldn't you? Yes. And that did work to my advantage in in some ways. I had a very realistic way about, realistic idea about how the book market worked. And I, I, I knew quite a lot about it and and when I found my agent, for example, I'd already worked with her on the other side. And so mm. when I'd worked with her as an editor, I thought, gosh, she's a bit annoying. <laughs> and then when I became an author, I was like, she's the one, definitely the annoying one. <laughs> but publishers, you know, they only publish what they think they can make a success of. So 
I was just delighted when they thought that what I was writing was of was of interest to them. You know, I was just as excited as anybody when I got my deal. And the first time I got a published copy through the post, I could not believe it. I was just over the moon. Um, in another way, it slightly went against me because with my sort of realpolitik publisher's head on, when the publicist said, well, you know, your kind of book doesn't really get much in the way of publicity, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, no one wants to know. I completely understand that. Yeah, no worries. Whereas really, I should have been going, what? Do your best. <laughs> you know? um, I think you should go and publicise my books. <laughs> so I sometimes had to remind myself I had to be on my own side <laughs> and not on their yeah. side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, turning to Lulu as reader, because we are here as the joys of binge reading, we like to give people who are listening a recommendation for other books they might enjoy. You you obviously have been a voracious reader right from childhood. Have you been a binge reader as well? And what are you currently reading that you'd feel like recommending? Well, I've always got piles of books next to my bed, which I am you know, eagerly looking forward to reading. But when I'm doing my own writing, I tend to steer clear of reading too many novels because of what I call the leakage. <laughs> you don't want to get someone else's voice into your head. And one of the problems with reading a lot of other fiction writers is that you always think, oh, they're so good. They're much better than I am. And it can work as a slight, well, demotivator almost, because you think, oh, what's the point? I'll never be as good as X. So sometimes, so I, I try and sort of steer clear, but once I've finished a book and that's done, then I, I'm hard at it again. And I love, I love lighthearted comic fiction as a real kind of release from some of the darker things that I've been writing about. And so I love Sophie Kinsella books. You know, she's a, she's just absolutely terrific. And, yes. um, and Veronica Henry is another lovely feel-good writer and if I'm feeling sort of historical and like I want to kind of go back in time then I will reread my favourite Nancy Mitford books or Elizabeth Jane Howard or um or Daphne du Maurier I've just started Olivia Manning actually she wrote the Fortunes of War series and oh, really yes, yeah. I really like Robert Harris I always enjoy his books they're they're a little sort of cooler generally but they're always fascinating and he does his research so well and then in the thrillers people like Lisa Jewell and and Louise Candlish who I obviously have a little sort of emotional link with I love her I read lots of non-fiction non-fiction history books diaries biographies autobiographies always really good for finding sort of snapshots about the bright young things or country life country houses bringing the past to life and if it's in a in a biography or a you know historical nonfiction, I can see how it can be adapted or used to sort of make make um, the past feel richer in books that mm. I'm writing. I like to make sure I've got my detail mm. right. Yeah, um, yeah. I always enjoy the sort of real life spy things by Ben McIntyre, and uh, I also sort of binge audio, love listening to audio books. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's a great it's a great release when when your eyes are getting tired, isn't it? Yeah, or when I can. When I'm going to be doing the ironing and I can still carry on, you know, reading <laughs> while, <laughs> while, while hard at work. Um, yeah. So that's been, uh, that's lovely finding a big series. And I actually binge listened to Anthony Trollope novels read by Timothy West. I thought they were just <gasps> terrific, really enjoyed them. I think he writes women really well. So I enjoyed those hugely. Fantastic. 
But that that's a real tip to look at, I must say. Yeah. Look, circling around, because we're starting to come to the end of our time together now, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, mm-hmm. if, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what? Mm, that is a very good question. I think I would probably, well, I would say to my younger self, have more confidence in yourself as a writer. Mm. You have to learn your craft as you go along. But I think if I could have been a bit more confident, and the other thing I would definitely say to myself is, don't forget to hide. (laughs) Whatever you've based from real life, hide it really well. (laughs) Because as soon as your friends and family start reading your books, they become absolutely convinced (laughs) that they know who you're really writing about. And quite often they think it's really them. (laughs) So um, (laughs) that's got me into a slightly sticky situation on a couple of occasions. Um, So I would definitely say to my younger self, change everything um, and change it before you write the story. Because one of the things I used to do was think, oh, I remember that story, you know, X told me that was brilliant. Oh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use it. But, you know, when I rewrite I'll make sure I change all the details, but I'll just put it down as it was for now. But by the time you've written it down, it becomes real in your in your book and you forget how much you've borrowed it from someone else's, you know, life or your life or your friendships and you don't make those changes. So I would say change now while you can. <laughs> That's a good bit of advice. <laughs> Look, looking ahead into 2022, it's been such a disrupted time, but what have you got on your desk for the next 12 months? Are you happily back into something new at the moment? I've got another two books with Macmillan to write, and I've had a, a great meeting with them recently where they said, you know, why don't we start to think about some something big you might like to write, something, you know, maybe maybe a series So I'm thinking about that, what I would do, because the kind of book I write is uh, there's a historical timeline and a timeline in the present. And sometimes I've said to myself, you know, I have to write two very small novels that fit perfectly together. (laughs) That's quite difficult. And at some point, I think I would quite like to try writing something that perhaps stretched further out into two or three books. Yeah. Really got to know my different timelines and my people and my characters. Really like seeing my characters at different points in their lives. In this most recent book, you see the characters at so many different points. You see them as babies and as grown-ups and young married people and then older people. And I really quite enjoy playing with all that perspective. So sort of going further on, I think, is quite enticing. Yeah, that would be... fun to think about that kind of thing probably also a little bit scary yeah as you were talking I was thinking about Lucinda Riley and the um, seven sisters I mean that was an amazing stretch not quite what you're talking about but that kind of thing mm. yeah absolutely I mean yes I suppose I haven't really thought of that but it her it was sort of seven stories that folded into one big story wasn't it or eight yes stories yeah. even and each one told a complete story in itself and I, I think that's really good because all series you have to be careful that you don't alienate people who think well I haven't read book one and therefore there's no point in reading yeah, book three. Yeah that's right you can pick up any of those ones and read them as a standalone that's right. Yeah, yeah. so I think that would be key but yes mm. um, she's left a, a great void she'll be much missed. One of the books that I loved from way way back University Days 
was the Alexandria Quartet, where you had four books, each one telling the same set of circumstances from a different viewpoint. And I just loved that book. In fact, I've been thinking about it recently and thinking, I don't know what happened to my copy. I must buy another one. You know, that thing where you move a house a few times and books seem to mysteriously go missing. But yeah, exactly that kind of thing, where you're getting the same thing, but from different viewpoints and aspects and things. It's fascinating. Oh, that is very, very interesting. Now, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and how can they reach out to you? I really always enjoy it, mostly because people don't, bothered to get in touch with you too much if they've really hated it they tend to get in touch with you if they've liked it so you know it's so lovely and encouraging and hearing how people have responded to the story is always just just heartwarming you know I love it I find I did have a or I do have a website but I think that people just don't really use websites so much for authors anymore and and updating it is a real kind of hassle, whereas your Instagram pages and your Facebook pages are so immediate and people can message you right away and you can immediately see it, you know, and it's just a really quick and convenient way of of being in touch with people. So I think, you know, Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook, my Facebook page are the places where I really interact with people. And I And one of the reasons I like doing the literary festival is getting to chat to people and you know, seeing people face to face. It's lovely for writers quite often because we're alone so much. Yes. And we'll have all the links to those, the social media in the post that goes out with the recording. So people can go to the website and find all of those things if they're looking for them and want to link in. I mean, these days, pretty well, you just need to Google it on Facebook, your name on Facebook, and it will come up. Yes. But they'll all be there anyway. Oh, yeah. lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Look, that's wonderful, Lulu. Thank you so much for our time. It's been great. We have run out of time. So all the best with your writing and have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks for listening today. Next week, I'm so excited because we'll be celebrating our 200th episode and we have a very special Christmas guest to share the occasion, Patty Callahan-Henry, whose remarkable insights into the life of English Christian apologist C.S. Lewis have produced two magical bestsellers. The newest of these, Once Upon a Wardrobe, explores the inspiration for the beloved Narnia children's fantasy series through the eyes of a small boy. Make a date. Don't miss the joys of binge reading next week with Patty Callahan henry Thanks for joining us and happy reading.